This episode of Zero Cafe is made possible by our partners Convert.com, Online Dialogue, Content Square, Sidespect, Online Influence Institute and VWO. Hey everyone and welcome to the third season of our podcast. This is going to be a very interesting year because the podcast is going to branch out into multiple language versions, each having their own unique interviews. Some of you may know that this podcast started as a Dutch podcast in season one, it transitioned into an English podcast in season two, and this year we're going to add Spanish episodes to the mix, hosted by my friend Ricardo Tahar Lopez. This is awesome, and I'm really looking forward to spreading Zero to more parts of the world. But my assumption is that it would be very confusing if we would keep publishing episodes in different languages into the same stream. Uh, you, you probably don't want notifications for episodes uh, that are in a language that you don't understand. So what I've done, I've broken up the feed into one feed per language to keep this all neatly organized. This means that going forward, our main podcast feed, feed which is the one you're listening to right now, will be English only. So if that's what you're interested in, you don't have to change anything. If, however, you are also interested in our Dutch or Spanish episodes, you will need to subscribe to those separately. You can uh, just search for Zero Cafe in the podcast app you're listening with right now, and you will find the different language versions and subscribe to them. Or as an alternative, you can go to the website, which is nl.zero.cafe for the Dutch version, or es.zero.cafe for the Spanish version, and find all your subscription options there. So if you want to do that, do that right now, and I'll wait for you here to get back. So let's get started with this episode. My guest today is the authority on evolutionary psychology and zero, Tim Ash. He's a sought-after international keynote speaker and the best-selling author of Landing Page Optimization and his new book, Unleash Your Primal Brain. He co-founded the digital optimization agency SiteTuners and ran that company for 19 years as their CEO, and he has been mentioned by Forbes as a top 10 online marketing expert. Tim helped to create over $1.2 billion in value for companies like Google, Expedia, Facebook, American Express, Canon, Nestle, Symantec, Siemens, and Cisco. And today we are going to take a deep dive in all that experience. Welcome to season three, episode one. When you're in the internet business for so long uh, as you have, I think you have a lot of interesting stories and knowledge to share uh, uh, with us. <laughs> 25 years uh, in zero. I, I don't think it's it's called zero back then. <laughs> uh, uh, no, I mean, I kind of coined, uh, helped coin the term landing page optimization and conversion rate optimization. Exactly. And some of your European colleagues have started calling it Crow, which I violently hate. <laughs> but okay, that's another topic. That's another topic. Um, and uh, with all that experience, um, um, and and you've been in this doing this for so long. Why are you still doing it? What what is your passion for for this uh, field of work? Well, you know, it's um, such a fascinating topic. I guess um, I've kind of come full circle, and I made a career out of uh, technology and learning that didn't exist. When I attended the University of California, San Diego. I studied computer engineering and cognitive science, uh, which was in the psych department at the time and is now its own department. 
And so I've always had an interest in cognition. I stayed there for graduate school for my PhD work for seven years in what would now be called neural networks or machine learning, deep learning, AI. So that is kind of teaching computers to learn by example. So it's always been my passion to understand how people think, how we make decisions. And in a way, the applying that to internet marketing and specifically influencing people when they come to your website, that's the perfect application for it. It's this blend of art and science. You, everything is infinitely measurable, but at the same time, the principles to influence people are based on psychology. And so I've been exploring the human brain, I guess, yeah. uh, my whole career. And um, so I, I also have a background in psychology. I don't know how your experience did it, uh, but... Um, at, at least here, when I studied it, uh, it had nothing to do with online. <laughs> right, right. So maybe your combination with computer science was was a bit more uh, focused on that. But but how how did you make that transition? I mean, uh, for, from being doing this stuff offline to online. Well, I I uh, my first jobs were more on the technical side, so they were programming yeah. and uh, they worked for big companies. And I realized what a soul killing environment that was. And I said, this isn't really for me. So in my late twenties, I, I was 29, I quit the PhD program seven years into it and I started my first business. So I actually got uh, an office space about 200 square meters and a desk and a phone and an internet connection. And then I called up my girlfriend at the time and said, hey, I'm running around my office naked and sitting in <laughs> my desk because I can. It's my business. You know, so it was really just that kind of entrepreneurial, I'm going to do my thing. And that happened to be in 1995, right when, you know, the early dot com days. So uh, it was, it's been a pretty exciting yeah. ride. I've seen the whole thing. And uh, well, uh, talking about that, um, uh, you, you, this is not your first book that you've written. Uh, you've already uh, written two other books. Uh, on, on landing yes. page optimization. Um, so what were your takeaways from, from the, the process and uh, the, I mean the writing and, and the marketing of, of book one and two? Um, and what did you take, uh, take with you to this book? Yeah, so the original book I wrote was the, the first edition of landing page optimization. Yeah. And that was followed up about four years later with the second edition. Um, and this has expanded. This was written with my friends and colleagues, uh, Rich Page and Maura Ginty, who are super smart and really helped make the second edition fantastic. And then it's been translated into several languages. Here's the German, uh, Brazilian Portuguese. Yeah. I think this is Korean. I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure it's <laughs> Korean. And then Chinese. But my favorites are the, the Polish, the Eastern European editions, right? This one cracked me up. This is my book in Russian, which is my native language. I was born in Moscow and I never wrote a word of it. So it's, <laughs> and it's really trippy to see it um, that way. But the, I guess, you know, to your question, um, writing a book is a huge, huge undertaking, as you probably know. Um, you know, you've talked to some yeah. authors before. Each one of those books took two years of my life. Yeah. And that's a big price to pay, especially when you're doing other things, running an agency, in my case, raising little kids. So you have to really want to give birth to a book. Exactly. In fact, I joke that that's the closest a man will ever come to giving birth. You know, it's a long, drawn out, painful process. It's a yeah. bloody mess by the time you're all done. And then the real work begins, just like raising a kid. You know, you have to promote the book and so on. And that, that work never ends. Yeah, well, m most authors tell me that they, they also say, I mean, it, it must be a very fulfilling thing to do uh, uh, out of your own 
interest and, and motivation because, uh, well, you shouldn't, for one, do it for the money. I mean, maybe if you're a New York Times bestseller, no. Uh, but otherwise, it should really come from the spin-off of the book. Uh, but the book itself is not something that you earn money with. Yeah, well, mine was actually fairly successful. It be, um, just the two U.S. editions sold 50,000 copies, yeah. which is a huge hit, especially in a, an applied exactly, book, yeah. a B2B book. So it's for marketing practitioners. How many of us are there yeah. out there? In fact, I've had people tell me, uh, or blame me, I always joke, you know, uh, that their career in CRO started by reading my <laughs> book. And they said, don't blame me for your poor career choices. You know? <laughs> uh, but so, so there is some gratification, but it's a solo activity. You have to, you're isolated, you're writing, you're in your head. And then maybe a year or two later, someone says, I loved your book, you know, and that, so you get this sporadic feedback that's delayed. So it's, it's not like keynote speaking, which, you know, from the badge wall, you can see I, I do a little bit of over the years, um, where you get immediate feedback from the audience. With books, it's it's really a, kind of a solitary activity yeah. writing a book. Yeah, exactly. And and when, once it's done, it's done, right? I mean, of course, you can have uh, revisions, but that's, it's relatively static compared to when you're talking to an audience and you can you can adopt while while doing the talk. Yeah, second to second based on their reactions. That's yeah. true. Yeah. So and of course we're going to talk about uh, uh, your book, but but. My last question before we do that. Um, so in, in, in those 25 years, how, how are we doing with Shiro right now? <laughs> how, do, how do you see uh, our... our... Uh, you know what? I'm not optimistic um, because I've seen you know generational change. I'm a Gen Xer. Millennials have come along. Uh, now there's Gen Z kids coming mm -hmm. into the workforce. And I see the same kind of mistakes being made on websites. Um, you know, what I... I had this whole chapter, your baby is ugly about the seven deadly sins of websites. And those are still endemic, those same problems of, you know, visual distractions, uh, not enough trust, uh, not keeping your promises, uh, unclear calls to action. I mean, they're, they're everywhere. It's yeah. not that hard for any of us in the CRO industry to take a look at any website and say, it sucks. And here's why. And you don't even need to test a lot of that stuff. Just fix it. So we're still kind of there because there's always new people cycling into the industry and the experience of the, uh, well, the more experienced people aren't really the ones designing the experiences. It's usually someone new. Um, and until they learn to really care about the user experience and about their putting the priorities of their visitors first, um, that won't change. And that takes a lot of, I guess, time and a, uh, psychological shift uh, to take on that perspective of haven't we proven ourselves enough or as as a as a as a field as heroes or you know the the i don't think so i think that the problem with cro um as an industry so so in terms of the world out there have we made it better yeah maybe a few websites but there's still plenty of ugly babies as i like to say yeah. out there you know really dysfunctional websites um, and so as long as there are websites, and that's an important caveat, that will probably continue. So good news, we all have job security. <laughs> yeah. Right? Uh, but eventually it won't be websites. It'll be holograms implanted in your skull, or it'll be voice or uh, mobile and or in-app in experience yeah. on mobile, rather, which is not really a website. Uh, so I guess there uh, from the um broader perspective of our websites better no they're not from the perspective of the industry i would say the big problem is we're too tools focused you know we we pay lip service to being user focused but we're technology focused and 
well, we need to be data driven. And my hypothesis is this. If I hear the word hypothesis one more time, I'm going to lose my lunch. You know, we, we're trying to make it all scientific and stuff. The bottom line is you get good ideas for improving websites and you have to make sure they didn't screw things up and make them worse. That's legitimate. But my problem is that there are all these tool companies that have been beating the drum of A-B split testing, test this, test this. You should test everything. I've actually had people tell me that. Really? The font <laughs> in your footer? Make it readable. You don't need the test changing it from 8-point to 10-point font. Just do it. Um, and so this over-reliance, I would say, on quantitative testing, um, everything has to be tested, I think is actually a disservice. And so we're seen as little technicians that are fiddling around with stuff and making tactical changes, mostly on single pages. Um, and a lot of the more powerful tools, what I did with my agency site tuners, um, you know, you have to have a strategic perspective. Sometimes you have to redesign a whole website. Sometimes you have to add a personalization layer. Sometimes you have to fix all of your email communications. Sometimes you have to uh, train your customer service people to sell better on the phone. We did a training for one client, trained about 60 of their phone reps. Uh, website sales stayed the same. Phone sales jumped up 15%. That was, we made millions of dollars with a one-week training. So I look at it more like a, a McKinsey or a high-end consultancy would attack it, which is very strategic. Yeah. Uh, and not just this kind of stay in your swim lane and just do your little tests. Yeah, it, it feels weird because um, uh, we're designing uh, those interfaces uh, on our computer and we don't see, we don't uh, experience how uh, our customer uses it. And I think that's, that's, that's an yeah. inherent problem or, or the way we design those things that's, that's inherent to our business, but it's also disconnects us from who we're actually designing it for. We we we're not we're not standing in a store, right? Like like a, a salesman in the no. store, uh, we don't have that immediate feedback again. Yeah, and you know it's it's funny because um, Ben and Carl, my friends um, in, in the UK, they are big advocates for walking a mile or a kilometer since they're in the UK in their visitor's shoes. So uh, I think Carl tells a story of they ordered a garden shed, and he not only ordered it, he put it together himself and then tried to call customer support for help and yeah. stuff like that. So how often do we do that as marketers? We're, we're sitting there talking about my ROAS is this, and this keyword group's performing well, and you know I'm at 95% significance, and this kind of bullshit, and we're talking to each other, and we never actually talk to the end users of our uh, product or service. We should be out there in the field. I think everyone at a larger company should be in customer service at least once a quarter, taking phone calls and seeing what's actually happening with their customers. Um, so there's definitely not enough of that. We're in our own little echo chamber. In the past year, marketing budgets have suffered and the share for A-B testing has been impacted too. If you want to keep testing to enterprise standards, but save 80% on your annual contract, you can consider Convert.com. With their latest release, you can take advantage of full-stack and hybrid features, strong privacy compliance, no blink, and enterprise-grade security. Feel good about a smart business decision? Invest what you save back into your zero program. Check it out at convert.com. In the book, uh, Unleash Your Primal Brain, um, I actually, I, I finished it half an hour ago. Woohoo! <laughs> the the audio book, actually. Uh, so, actually, uh, more out of interest, um, you did the audiobook yourself too, uh, which is not yes. that common. 
Uh, but I really love it uh, when, when authors uh, do that. It, it really gives a different dimension to the book when it's read by the person <laughs> that actually wrote, uh, wrote, wrote everything. It. Um, so the audiobook is, I think, 5 hours, 16 minutes. Um, how long does it take to record something like that? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. I, I had to learn it all myself. I decided to do it myself for a couple of reasons. One is apparently for nonfiction, that's actually preferred that the author recorded. It. It's kind of a you know selling yeah. point, a big deal. Yeah. But also, I, I am an international keynote speaker, so maybe I know how to present and communicate. <laughs> yeah. Just just the thought. So I um, I studied everything from how to record it, what software to use, how to clean it up and make it okay for um, Audible and other platforms. And I did all of that myself. It was really fun. I built oh, my wow. own sound isolation booth yeah. in, in my office out of moving blankets and PVC pipe to cancel all the room echo. Uh, and basically, uh, they say about three hours of um, total time for one hour of finished recorded. Now I had to mess around and learn platforms and stuff, but yeah. Yeah, actually I was under that. Probably about, it's about an hour and a half of editing for me for every hour of finished oh, audio. that's not too bad. No, that, no, that, it's not too good. bad. You take yeah. out the ohms and ums and the yeah. breath sounds. You can't put <laughs> <Yeah>. like, <laughs> you can't do that on the, on yeah, the book. exactly. So. Nice. <laughs> um, so let's get, let's get into the book. Uh, what, what stood out for me, uh, a large part of the book is, is uh, actually about uh, the evolution and, and, and brain biology. And, and, and I was wondering, so uh, very recognizable, first off, uh, uh, from, of course, uh, studying uh, uh, psychology myself. But I, I am mm -hmm. wondering, so uh, knowing things like, uh, like how, how neurotransmitters work, um, how does that help a regular human being to get insights <laughs> into their behavior or their in customer's behavior? Yeah, well, uh, to be clear, the book is not written specifically for marketers. It's not a neuromarketing yeah. book. Although, I, if you read through it, what as you know, and in the audio book, I uh, use kind of audio callouts. But throughout yeah. the book, there are these callouts, and there are a couple of hundred plus of them, and they're the main points. Um, and if you pause on each one of those and consider how does this apply to neuromarketing or marketing more broadly, you could read the book with that prism. But the book is really kind of the basic operating for human beings. It's retracing the arc of evolution from earliest life on Earth to what makes us bizarrely and distinctly human. And it's saying we picked up stuff along the way. What works is still there. And let's figure out, you know, which part of the brain is actually acting in a certain situation. So it's you can use it for business, leadership, persuasion, marketing, sales. You can use it for personal relationships yeah. and uh, culture building and organizational psychology. You can use it for personal development, you know, sleep, memory, what makes us happy, whether it makes sense to chase happiness in the first place. So it's really kind of a, what all 8 billion of us on the planet have in common. It's not an applied book. Um, stay tuned. I may write eventually in the same series, you know, primal brain marketing, primal brain leadership, you know, primal brain personal improvement. Yeah. So those would be layered on applied books, but this one is the why behind yeah. our evolutionary psychology. Yeah, it, it, it feels, especially as, a, as someone interested in this topic, it feels like a, uh, like a history book almost of, of uh, collecting all those bits and pieces of, of how the brain evolved and uh, how it worked out. So that, it, it does that really well. Yeah, thank you. I, I wrote it to be really uh, approachable. There is um, a book and a 
TV series in the U.S. many years ago by Carl Sagan called Cosmos. Mm -hmm. He was kind of like the Neil deGrasse Tyson 1.0, if you will. And, yeah. and so he would say billions and billions of stars, you know, and, and he would make astrophysics fun for the common person. And a lot of people were turned on by it. And so this is my attempt to do the same thing for how our brains really work. Uh, I'm trying to make it accessible to everyone. My problem was that there are a lot of specialist books and most of them were unreadable. I mean, everybody talks about Kahneman's work, for example, thinking fast and slow, right? That's a, that's a, that book's about a thousand yeah. pages and I wouldn't <laughs> wish it on anyone. It's like, it's an important book, therefore you should read it. But it, you know, it's written by a researcher and he's not a good writer yeah. and neither are a lot of the other people. So there's all these perspectives like you said in the book, it's 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 uh, being human one on one or <laughs> how the brain works yeah. one on one. I think it's it's it will be also for, um, uh, well, obviously for the general public, but also I think for for students doing this or um, uh, cognitive sciences, it will be a great starting point. Um, uh, to, to well, and you ask how this applies to marketing. So so to return to that question, um, I think that anybody that is in marketing. It doesn't understand what they're trying to influence, which is the human brain, yeah. is at a huge disadvantage. So we're thinking, oh, Twitter this and, you know, uh, retargeting that. And it's, again, mostly technology-based. And you really, if you want to have a durable career as a marketer, I don't care, online, offline, you have to understand what you're trying to influence. Yeah. And that's the human brain. Yeah, that, that's so often... that, to me, this is foundational stuff. Yeah, and that's often what I see... Um... Uh, going wrong with uh, when people uh, talk about Cialdini, for example. Uh, I mean, mm -hmm. the book is fine, uh, and the theories are fine, but um, it, it's not as random. It, it feels sometimes feels a bit random. You just okay. We need to do social proof, or we need to do uh, add uh, uncertainty, or uh, add scarcity, or or whatever. And it's it's not that yeah. you need to fi first figure out where the issue is, uh, where people are getting stuck, and which could be because of their behaviors or how the brain works. And then right. apply something that's that compensates for that or fix that. Yes, and and I think that's that's another issue I have uh, from the behavioral economics side or the neuromarketing side. There's all these like tips and tricks and wheels of persuasion, and here's a thousand tactics you can use to you know basically manipulate me. Uh, but it, there's no common through line through any of it. And so I'm trying to explain the why and say this is a result of. Uh, evolution and there's many different layers to it so it's an ambitious book in the sense that it, like you say i cover neurochemistry uh, sleep memory learning uh, language culture gender differences our highly social natures um, but you you kind of need to retrace that whole arc to see what where those unconscious shortcuts are coming from which stage of evolution is really impacting that or causing it if you will then it becomes much more coherent instead of just a bunch of tactics. Exactly. Yeah. And um, uh, yeah, there's, there's no shortage uh, of tactics uh, in our field. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, everyone's got a blog post with the top 10 ways to manipulate exactly. people. Um, you already mentioned uh, Kahneman. Uh, when we talk about uh, uh, the primal brain, uh, would, would that be uh, similar to Kahneman's system one? Yeah, and again, it's kind of making it technical, but the the way that I look at it, there's the the reasoning brain, the neocortex, the one that has access to language and what you consider conscious thought. Uh, but most of your life is on autopilot. There's massive amounts of information coming at you every second. Just even right now, you're listening to me, 
you're feeling the pressure of the chair on your butt. Uh, you know the relationship of all of your joints in space, which is why when you eat something, you don't stick the fork in your head by accident, right? There's all this information coming in and 99.999% of it is ignored because it doesn't have survival value. But it's happening automatically. That process never stops. It never gets tired. Contrast that with conscious thought. Asking for our conscious attention is really hard as a marketer because the scarce resource and we conserve it and we get tired later in the day and we don't make good decisions. So all of that conscious stuff is a completely different thing. And people think that uh, rationality is the ultimate human thing, right? Oh, if we could only tame those irrational passions and emotions, then we'd all be like Mr. Spock and making perfect decisions. That's actually not a good view of humanity. 95% of what we're doing is subconscious. And so let's understand that part better. Yeah, and it doesn't have necessarily have to be uh, uh, better to make a logical decision. Those emotions uh, have served us well. They are there for a reason. Uh, you, basically, all your, your, your parents, your grandparents, and the whole uh, lineage that you have, they survived because they have had those instincts. For billions of years. Exactly. In fact, there, you said instead of making a logical decision, there, let me be super clear. There is no such thing as a logical decision. I mean that literally. There have been brain damaged people who had certain parts of their uh, brain disconnected or not working. And what we found from the neuroscience is that you can't make a logical decision. The emotions are what decide. So logic gives you options. Here's 50 things you could do right now. And emotion quickly says, okay, these are the ones that matter. I either hate this or I love it. I have a strong emotion and that's how decisions get made. There's literally no such thing as a logical decision. Yeah, exactly. And uh, one thing that I also really liked uh, how you mentioned it in the book is that uh, basically after you're born, uh, you, you still need to download, <laughs> uh, well, besides all the, all the physicalities, uh, learning not to uh, stick your fork in your, in your head, although my, my two-year-old still, still does that. <laughs> uh, so he, he's not past that point. But you, you also need to download uh, all the cultural values. And, and that's a really important part of, uh, of being human, right? It, it takes roughly 20 years uh to fully do that um and and um despite we having all the these uh, underlying uh, shared biology uh that cultural part is really important can you give us a, a couple of examples of those uh things that yeah, we well, we're, still yeah, need I think, to download uh well i think that to understand humans and why we took off on the planet like went over ran it and are about to kill it i believe um is because of our success in transmitting culture uh, that's our big evolutionary bet. Other animals um, have two advantages. If they occupy a wide ecological range, they adapt physically to that. So squirrels run, have rotating ankles so they could run down tree trunks, or some of them have wings so they can fly between trees. They're adapting to their environment physically. Uh, humans didn't do that. We placed one big bet on culture spread. And, and in order to have these very expensive brains, about three times more expensive to run than any other primate, um, we decided to delay and make compensating um, kind of effects throughout our body. Our digestive system is smaller. Our muscles are weaker. All of that is so we can grow our brain. In fact, adolescence is delayed. I have two teenagers in the house and they go crazy and hormones kick in and they grow to their adult size and sexual maturity very quickly. That's so you can keep the body small and keep wiring up the brain. And so our advantage is the stuff we learn from people around us 
um, gives us an edge for our particular environment. It's not physical adaptations, it's yeah. cultural knowledge. And um, so the, because of that, we have all these weird adaptations, like human beings live decades longer than past their reproductive years. No other mammal does that. And that's so we can spread knowledge and we can, you know, the grandmothers and grandfathers can teach the children. Um, so there's this kind of cultural transmission is the key for us. Downloading yeah. things like in the Matrix movie, I want to download the program to fly the helicopter. Okay, great. You know, as babies, we're doing that by watching people around us. Yeah. Yeah. You don't see other species uh, doing things like public speaking. And it's uh, not really. Well, that too. Yeah. Language <laughs> is, is, is definitely uh, helps in all of this. Um, but it's, it's culture spread that makes us human. And that, yeah. that has good and bad implications for tribes and uh, the values that we hold and co competition among tribes. That's definitely part of our psychology. Yeah. Yeah. Another interesting uh, one that, uh, came from your book, I think was, uh, I mean, dominance versus prestige. I mean, dominance is obviously yes. something that you definitely see in the animal kingdom. Uh, prestige, that, that's something specifically human. Yeah, so let's, let's talk about that. So they're kind of independent species like crocodiles and fish. Fish might spawn 100 million eggs and hope a few of them survive, but it's not exactly caretaking for the children. You know, even birds, they sit on the egg, but feed the little bird, but then you're on your own. Um, mammals have to survive in herds. So in, you have the protection of the group, even though we're individually weaker than most of these independent type of animals. So there's, then you have this stuff of like, how do I behave in my group to minimize the social consequences to me, bad, bad things happening, uh, but still get what I need. So there you have like the, the dominant alpha individuals, males and females, and they get all the food mating opportunities, safety of being in the middle of the herd. Yeah. So that's basically bullying. Okay, we have a president like that in the White House right now, hopefully for not much longer. Um, yeah. So some people can get away with that, but generally we're cooperative. And so for human beings to spread culture, you not only have to want to learn, we're incredible mimics, and, but to know who to learn from. And then those people have to want to teach you. It's like I studied martial arts, and in the Chinese martial arts, there's this notion of an indoor student. Like you don't really see the good stuff. You're out in the courtyard practicing until you're invited years later to be an indoor student after you've shown your willingness to stick it out, you know, karate kid style. Yeah. So, some, but you have to have somebody who wants to teach and gets psychic benefit or survival benefits from teaching and transmitting culture. And that's something other animals don't have. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and uh, shame is another one, right? That's not something that that's also something that you need to develop. A, a one-year-old doesn't really have shame. That's also something. No, that you... that, and, and that's an interesting thing. There's a lot of group pressure. You know, in the West, we have this mistaken notion that we're individuals, you know, and that my individual happiness matters and I'm so unique and wonderful. But that very notion of being an individual was snuck into our heads. We're very much influenced by the people around us and the cultural norms that they're transmitting. And if you don't follow the norms, there's this escalating consequences that happen. We're all enforcers of the rules. In other words, even if we don't know that there are social rules, we, what they are rather, we assume that we're operating in a world of social rules. And so if you break norms, you know, we can gossip about you, we can end your personal relationships, we can deny you economic opportunities, we can banish you, we can even kill you, depending on how important the rules are to our culture. 
So this uh, notion of censorship and shaming other people and getting them to fall in line, that's so we can, again, transmit that cultural knowledge more efficiently. Yeah. If somebody's an individual and doesn't listen, they're not a good team player. And so our team versus the other team, we're going to lose if we can't spread culture quickly. So we sanction people, including with shame. That's yeah. a pretty mild one. But to to help with that culture spread. Yeah, and I think in, in the final part of the of the book, you you also you give a couple of tips how to unleash, unleash your primal brain, and one of them is also to to make your group bigger, right? I think that's the, the tendency is the other way around, right? At least for I mean, yeah, unless you you see, okay, I have uh, 10 million uh, Twitter followers, but that that's not really <laughs> what what we mean here by getting making by, your group by making your group bigger. Yeah, certainly. I think that so. Uh, at the end, I talk about this is more my my wish and uh, my prescription for for having our society improve. And you're right, that's attaching to bigger and bigger tribes. So you can think of it as a concentric series of tribes. There's me, there's my immediate family, there's my community, my uh, synagogue or church or temple. Then there's my town, state, city, uh, sorry, uh, country, the universe or the earth, all living things on the earth besides humans and so on. So what, if you have too small of a tribe, if you say, I'm only, I only care about my city or my country, everybody else becomes in the out group and you struggle against them. They're the other. And you can see people stoking fears, um, you know, dividing us, these populist kind of leaders, it's all, not just in the US, but all over the world. And they're playing on the fears of the other and dehumanizing them, making them seem alien. Um, so you have to go out of your way to build bridges and connections and experience things that are the opposite of what you're getting. And one of the problems with our, our age is that in the age of social media, most of us live in little echo chambers where we just have people that think just like us. And we, therefore we think the whole world is like that and it's not. And if the center is going to hold together, we have to, you know, actively make the yeah. effort to understand others and experience other cultures and people. So, so what, what would your advice be? How, how do you make your you know, group bigger than, than it is right now? Well, it's not about making your group bigger. It's about willing, uh, you know, spending your time with other people. So for example, in the U S right now, the black lives matter movement is, is um, because of the uh, injustice in our criminal justice system is, is very popular and people say well i'm not prejudiced against black people or i have a black friend you know and like, well have, like, i remember one time distinctly i was in junior high school and we went on a family trip to washington dc and uh, large portions of washington are largely black and so we went to the the main mall the smithsonian and so on and then we went a few blocks off the mall to go to a pizza place and it was really odd for me to be surrounded pretty much only by black people. And then so I, I, I kind of try to um, turn that around and say, well, that's what black people must feel like in a room full of white people. And yeah. it was uncomfortable for me, you know, for no particular reason. If I spent a lot of time in mixed neighborhoods, that would be different. And that's my point. When was the last time you, you talked to someone of a different culture or a different religious belief, or even things like riding the bus to school? A lot of kids in the US are bused to schools to, so they wouldn't be as segregated. Um, you know, you have to stretch yourself to put yourself in situations that you feel at least uncomfortable in, in order to get used yeah. to it and feel more comfortable and understand there are people yeah. just like you. Will this work? Hmm, maybe not. 
Isn't that what we're all trying to figure out? With VWO, create and A-B test different variations of your website to continuously discover the best performing versions that improve conversions. Stop guessing. Start A-B testing with VWO today. Speaking of, uh, of social groups, uh, I think this is a really topical one. Uh, let me quote from your book. Uh, if people become socially isolated, they stop meddling and uh, simulating the feelings of others. And uh, now, of Yeah, they stop have, modeling have... and simulating the feelings yeah. of others. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, and, and now, of course, we have this pandemic and, and uh, physical distancing. Um, how, how, do you th- how should governments and other organizations try to compensate for this? Because it can have long-lasting effects. Um, I'm not sure you can. My point is that we're really, we're hyper-social and isolation is the worst thing you can do to someone. I think if we look back on our times and we look at, for example, supermax prisons where somebody's in a cage for 23 hours a day, and then they go to exercise by themselves in an outdoor cage for the remaining hour, that's inhumane. People literally go insane in that environment because of the isolation. Um, so we need human contact. There's no way to compensate for it. Uh, 20 seconds of, uh, skin to skin contact releases oxytocin, which is the mother's child bonding chemical. Um, it makes us feel good, right? If we feel safe and protected in our in-group, there's no substitute for that. No number of zoom meetings is going to fix that. And I think you're seeing this crisis in mental health. You see domestic abuse. You see depression, especially among younger children who are forming their identity based on their peer group. I have two in the house. They're, they're severely depressed at times. Uh, it's no joke. I think you know, suicides and things like that are, are a real risk. Um, yeah. So well, yeah, there was this longitudinal study uh, about uh, kids that attended Harvard and their South Boston kind of poor cousins, if you will. And they've tracked these people now for 70, 80 years. And they found that the thing that most contributes to your wellness and life expectancy is your degree of social connection. That not having that is the equivalent of being a two pack a day cigarette smoker. So don't underestimate the need for, you know, social interactions, whatever your tribe is. Yeah. Get out the door. Yeah. Get out the door, go see people face to face. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, what would be your, your tips for, for CROs? So let's get back to that. <laughs> uh, sure, what would be your absolutely. Tips for, for CROs um, that, that are working at a company and want to create a larger support base for CRO within that company? Not, not everyone's working mm. at, uh, at a booking.com uh, where, where experimentation is uh, the way uh, of living. Um, and that's, that's obviously a topic uh, often mentioned here in the podcast. How do we create this? culture of experimentation and validation. Okay, well, now you're talking again, culture and culture spread. It's interesting. You have to have influencers that seed that. So people that have influence within the company. One of the biggest mistakes I've I've seen, and I actually had a client tell me this once, well, CRO is a swim lane. You know, we have SEO, we have PPC, we have CRO, affiliate. It's just stay in your swim lane, you know. And I think if you view it as a tactical little activity, and we keep talking with words like hypothesis, and again, not one of my favorites, and our technical little jargon, we're not going to get a seat at the grown-up table. All of the management cares about one thing. They speak one language, and that's money. So unless we're talking money, they're not going to pay attention. Unless we're talking to the upper management, they're not going to pay attention. So 
one of the things that's uh, I found determines success is where does CRO report in the organization? If you don't have air cover from a senior executive, it's probably not going to work. I mean, keep doing your job. Like I said, you'll be employed for life. There's no shortage of crappy websites. But <laughs> if you want to have access or rather you need access to senior management and and they need to think of you as more strategic. If all it is is just tactical testing activities and there's no bigger optimization initiatives going on at the company, yeah, there's there's no way to change it. Yeah. Yeah, I was talking to uh, uh to Johnny uh, Longdon uh, the other week for, for also for the podcast. Uh we spoke about uh well the topic was mainly about emb embedding zero into an agile environment. But actually the conclusion was, well, if you have an agile environment and you don't do, do zero, you don't have a proper agile environment because you're not including the user in there. And it should be yeah. included in, in the whole process, right? In, in definitely not in streamlines. It's something you should adopt company-wide. Yeah, but I also the very notion of agile is tactical. I mean, we're doing a sprint. Yeah. It lasts a week. Then we might adjust. Then we're going to do something different. So it's it's very on the ground tactical. And what I'm saying is where I've seen it succeed is like my, my friend Joe Megabow. He's now the CEO of the mattress company Purple. But before that, he was the senior vice president of optimization at Expedia. And he reported to the president of Expedia. And uh, I once uh, did a training day, like presented at their international um, optimization summit. and their goal was to improve revenue by 5% company-wide. And it doesn't seem like an ambitious goal, but this is, they were a $20 billion company, so it was a yeah. billion dollars they yeah. were trying to add to their top line. That's a significant activity. And so he reported directly, like I said, up to the president. He started with two people, I believe, under him and then grew this out and was overseeing all the different optimization groups at their different properties worldwide. Uh, and they hit those goals and much more. That became a driver of the business. But again, you need a strategic view of it. If it's just a tactical activity, um, it, it's not. It's going to fail. Yeah, because you can't control the business yeah. model. You can't control the user experience. You can't control the communication, the content marketing, or the email marketing. So if you're just yeah. screwing around with UX on the website, you fail. Yeah. And, but you don't necessarily have to start there, right? Uh, usually, my idea, if, if you can start at a company doing that I mean, for the first half year or first year, uh, it's fine doing those, those technical, technical things. Uh, but prepare yourself for a more elaborate role within the company and, and try to move up. That's right. And you should be asking all the hard questions. Go to the CFO and say, what's our customer lifetime value? Most companies have yeah. no clue until <laughs> no. you, you know, you, you have to pull teeth to get that data. And even if you have to do it based on assumptions, the fact that you're asking those questions is going to make you more influential. Yeah. Yeah. I, I once worked for a company that's over 60 years old and I, they had no idea what the, what the average customer value was. <laughs> and it wasn't yeah. an online business, obviously, because it's 60 years old. Uh, but I'm like, okay, but you're doing this for, for six years. So no one ever <laughs> asked that question. Asked that question. Yeah. How is that, how is that the thing? How is that possible? How do you not know <laughs> what the, and of course for, and it was the, so specifically for that case, uh, there was, uh, was lead generation. So basically they were throwing a lot of money, uh, at the websites to get more leads, but no one had any idea what the value of a lead was. <laughs> So you can imagine. Yeah, that's unfortunately, we're laughing, but that's probably, what, 80%, 90% yeah. of the time that's the case. Yeah, that's yeah. a shame.
Um, and I, I think the final one uh, for me that um, uh, that that stood out for me for the book, the, the final tip, I think in, the, in chapter uh, 23, 20, 24, um, that I don't see uh, coming along that much in, in uh, these kind of books is, is get more sleep. <laughs> oh, you know, if there's a personal, if you want to have a happy life, sleep is not optional. It's daily life support. Yeah. Here's a thought. Every animal or insect that lives more than a few days on this planet has some form of sleep. If it wasn't important, it wouldn't happen. It's, it, so if you want to maintain your life, human beings have a very intensive need for sleep. We shortened our sleep because once we came out of the trees, it became much more dangerous on the ground. We have more intense sleep with a lot more REM. Most of that REM sleep is tail weighted in the night. And so if you're robbing yourself of that final couple of hours, that 90 minute last sleep cycle, you're, you're not creative. You're not learning anything, including physical skills. You're miscalibrating social interactions, which is what allows us to be effective. So you think people are more aggressive and you get more paranoid essentially from lack of sleep. Yeah. Um, you know, we've all seen these effects, but we still think that pulling out our phone and looking at it one more time and, um, or binge watching one more episode is the right thing to do. It's not. Uh, yeah. I, my kids move to a later sleep schedule. I just go 10 o'clock. I'm going to bed because my body wakes me up around six. That's it. You, you vampires stay up all night. I'm not going to shortchange my sleep anymore. Yeah. Well, it also changes uh, uh, depending on your age, uh, right? So that how, how much sleep you need and when do you need it uh, during the day? Or um, Yeah, kids need more sleep um, and they are on an earlier schedule. Teenagers yeah. flip to a much later schedule than even adults, but they still need a lot of sleep. And you no, know, adults, you pretty much need seven to nine hours yeah. a day. Yeah, I think it was uh, uh, your whole a study life. from at least, I think it was an American uh, university that they said, well, basically before 10, 11 a.m., it doesn't make sense to get students. To school because <laughs> yeah they're still asleep. yeah uh, <laughs> our school well right now it's all virtual so i guess yeah. you can call it homeschool but uh, our high schools just flip to a later schedule and that's the science so that teenagers stay up later and wake up later so um in our district it was the opposite high school was the earliest start time 7 a.m whereas it was at like 8 30 for the elementary schools now they flipped it so high school doesn't start till nine o'clock and, yeah. and that's how you get better performance yeah, good. Yeah, the 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 sleep part uh, really resonated for me. But in, in my former life, being part of the national swimming team, we basically had to report on three things: it was the exercise that we did, what we got uh, into our bodies, diet, uh, food, food wise, yeah. the diet, and number three was sleep. And uh, yeah, yeah sleeping shorter uh, definitely. Well, we didn't have any any quality scores for sleep, but definitely sleeping uh, shorter definitely uh, correlated uh, highly with bad performance uh, overall. Yeah. Yeah, including like if you if you just did if you practice some skill, physical skill like swimming, and you didn't get proper sleep, it won't get encoded. So you didn't get the benefit of the skill. Yeah. So trying to cram all night for a test is stupid. Just like study less and get extra sleep, and you'll do better because at least you'll retain that new information. Yeah. So yeah, everybody says the you know, diet, exercise, sleep, you know, is always a third one. It should be the opposite. Sleep is foundational, which also. Uh, impacts your diet and your exercise yep. uh, and then everything else is layered on top of it yeah nice so uh tim for the book uh well thanks for writing it uh in the first place i think it's yeah. a great, uh, great addition uh um uh, to what we already have out there I think a great starting point for for digital marketeers like you said that have currently no idea what you're actually optimizing for and there's there's a brain <laughs> on the other side of that screen 
uh, that wants to be influenced and uh, but there are some basics that uh, that might help you uh, uh, some basic knowledge that, that might help you do this so um you already mentioned it but that there's going to be an unleash xyz <laughs> it's going to be a whole series uh, possibly although like i said uh writing books is a huge task yep. and um i'm just uh, want to get the word out about this one and i think this is like i said what the eight billion of us have in common so i think it has a pretty wide applicability and uh, the early reviews are all fantastic in fact you mentioned robert cialdini he was kind enough to actually blurb the book on the front cover because he loved it uh, so I'm very proud of that. He and I have keynoted at some events together. And, uh, he's a professional crush of mine, so yeah. <laughs> that was really flattering. Um, but so, yeah, there there will be other books in the series, but don't hold your breath. It's uh, I need to take a rest from writing this one. Yeah, exactly. Well, it seems like you already uh, published this earlier, right? Because my my book actually says copyright 2021. Well, the U.S. edition is technically coming out in April of 2021. So right now you can get the eBooks everywhere, the audiobooks everywhere. And yeah. if you want autographed copies of the paperback, I have some pre-release author copies that, that I, uh, you can get on the website, primalbrain.com. Uh, but yeah, if you want the U.S. edition, it's not out till April 6, ah, 2021. Nice. Ah. But the Australian, the New Zealanders get it before us because... Uh, my friend Tony Nash runs Booktopia in Australia, and their Booktopia Editions division published a separate edition in September. So if you're an Aussie or a Kiwi, you can get your copy now. <laughs> nice. So we'll add some uh, links in the show notes for people to, uh, to order those, uh, those versions. Yeah, yeah uh, just go to primalbrain.com, and it has the where to get it information on the site, along with the table of contents and, and the introduction and other stuff. Exactly. Uh, Tim, uh, final question uh, back to the beginning. So we, we started off uh, talking about you having uh, all this experience for the last 25 years. What, what is one experience that you or, uh, think you have, uh, one insight that you have that you think others have, have not catched up on yet in the industry? Um, it, it's, it's still a mindset. I mean, I think it, even in CRO, our center of gravity is still inside of a company. And mine has always been to ruthlessly advocate for the needs of your visitors. And so if you just, they don't have a seat at the table. You know, like say, yep. marketing's got it, sales has got it, operations has a seat at the table. Your, your customers don't have a seat at the table. So your job as a CRO is to only advocate for the needs of your customers. If you align their needs and understanding of their needs with your company strategy, that's how you make money. And again, I, I just fear that we're too much inside of our company still. So get out of your office, talk to your actual customers. Um, you'll learn a lot more that way than by, by, you know, flipping through your spreadsheets and your campaign yeah. analysis. Yeah, exactly. Open Google Analytics for a 20th time a day. <laughs> it's not, it's not going to um, uh, give you the biggest insights. No, no. In fact, you're, you're kind of on a single track and you're, and you're stuck there. Exactly. Tim, thank you so much. And my, uh, my final question uh, to you, um, who, who do you think I should invite to the, to the Zero Quay podcast for, for another episode? And what should I ask them? Oh, well, again, I think um, Dr. Cialdini would be my vote, Robert Cialdini. <laughs> and his book you know, uh, is called Influence, The mm -hmm. Psychology of Persuasion. And that's kind of a, one of the Bibles in our field. He just came out with a new one called Presuasion about influencing people as well. Uh, so you might want to invite him. He's For number an amazing seven. guy. Yeah, we actually uh, spoke to uh, Bas Wouters. Uh, he he, he co-wrote a Dutch book 
on online influence and they're actually releasing their book together with Cialdini. Uh, and he's he's mm-hmm. also going to try to persuade Cialdini to uh, do a podcast with me. So if if we approach this from from enough angles, <laughs> maybe, <laughs> yeah, maybe it happens. Yeah, that, that, well, that would certainly yeah, be a good one. My my question would be, uh, what's what's going to be persuasive principle number eight? We all know, <laughs> right, right. right. <laughs> it's like there's still a, a, still a I, tactic, just, but uh, yeah, yeah. I I re recently reread the. Uh, the Four Agreements uh, by Don Miguel Ruiz. And uh, I think he came out with another book as like The Fifth Agreement. You know, it's kind of like <laughs> I didn't get that in the first book. So now I get to do a follow up. Exactly. It was scratched in the first version, but uh, it's still there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, if, if Cialdini, I mean, if you go to Wikipedia, if you look at uh, cognitive biases, there's, uh, there's over, I think, six, seven hundred of them. So. <laughs> You can, you can write a couple yeah, but, of... but, you know, it's like, what, I think the reason that he really liked my book, especially the last part about what makes us human, is um, I talk about our highly social natures, but again, the evolutionary why behind it. So if you, you can look at his six or seven, yeah. and you can see from an evolutionary perspective how they all make sense and why they're so compelling. Yeah, and that's an interesting uh, part about your <laughs> uh, history lesson uh, in, in the most positive way, uh, because then you, then you try... To, you don't only learn about those tactics, but also why they evolved that way, why it's working that way. And uh, yeah, and and again, you uh, you say it as a history lesson, but you know, um, <laughs> I just want to be super clear. I wrote this book without any bullshit. When yep. I was done writing a chapter, I just stopped writing if I didn't have anything else to say. It's designed to be readable. There's no footnotes. There's no endnotes. There's a recommended reading appendix. You know, books that yep. you might want to look at. But this is designed to be very easy to read as you know from the audiobook i designed it to be read uh, out loud yeah. so um it's it's hopefully an engaging style it's not some chore like reading a history book <laughs> no definitely not no you you definitely uh, succeeded uh, doing that now congratulations on that thank you my friend well, well done uh tim thank you so much for for doing this and um i hope to talk to you soon it's been my pleasure take care guido take care bye bye and this concludes Season 3, Episode 1 of the Shiro Cafe Podcast with Tim Ash. Make sure to check out the show notes on the Shiro Cafe website. Next episode, I talk with Chad Sanderson about why they have built their own experimentation platform, what the differences are between an experimentation culture and an innovation culture, and what you need to take into account when running offline experiments. Talk to you then, and always be optimizing. For over 10 years, Online Dialogue advises about evidence-based conversion optimization with a focus on data and psychology. We see that analyzing data and recognizing customer behavior results in a better online dialogue with your clients and a higher ROI. The team of strategists, analysts, psychologists and UX specialists gather valuable insights in the online behavior of your visitors and together with you, they optimize the different elements of your CRO program through redesigns, expert reviews, A-B tests and behavioral analysis. For more info about the services of this award-winning CRO agency, go to onlinedialogue.com.